So, when we had lunch, I asked you to eat in moderation. And then during the break, to not get too interested in what's going on around you. To watch how you look. From where do you look? What are you looking for? You know, we, we don't stop and ask, what is it that I'm looking for? Why am I interested? Why do my eyes move around like that, the way they do? Where does it come from? Is it because I sense that something is missing? Or is it for a different reason? It's very important that we, that we don't chop up the practice to sitting, getting up, walking around, taking a break, using the bathroom, eating. It's extremely important that we practice continuously at all times. There is restlessness. That's a given. There was no restlessness, we wouldn't be experiencing what we are experiencing. There wouldn't be that madness that we are exposed to with this election season. We create all that. We are responsible, including Trump or anybody else that you like or dislike. It really doesn't matter. These are all, all our creations. Because we look around, because we are not satisfied, we don't know what it is to be satisfied. Obviously, if we did, then we won't be looking around. Or we will be looking around without looking around. It's not the same. This reminded me of one of the eight awarenesses, one of the last teachings of the Buddha. Before he died. And this is about knowing how to be satisfied. And he said, you monks, or you, us, all of us, should contemplate knowing how to be satisfied if you wish to be liberated from suffering. The Dharma of knowing how to be satisfied is the realm of riches, comfort, peace and tranquility. Those who know how to be satisfied are happy and comfortable even when sleeping on the ground. Those who do not know how to be satisfied are not satisfied even when dwelling in heavenly palaces. Those who do not know how to be satisfied are poor even though they are wealthy. 
those who know how to be satisfied are wealthy even though they have very little. Those who do not know how to be satisfied and are always tempted by the five senses, five desires, are consoled by those who know how to be satisfied. This is called knowing how to be satisfied. But satisfied with what? Right? That's the question. Because being satisfied always have, has that sense of me and what I'm satisfied with. Getting what I want, discarding of what I don't want. When we look at being satisfied, we don't look at satisfaction. We look at the thing or the things that are either in the way of me and satisfaction Right? That's one way. There is an obstacle to be removed. Or things I need for that satisfaction. In either case, it has to do with something else. And practice, all aspects of practice are targeting that, targeting the restlessness. Targeting the sense of separateness, sense of duality, sense of creating a gap that essentially does not exist. Essentially does not exist. But it does exist. You create something, you act based on what you create, naturally. And koans are designed to break that, to shatter what's not there. They're designed to open our hands so we stop grasping. So when we work on koans, it's only natural that we'll, we will feel frustrated. Because the Quran is telling you to open up, to let go, to not grasp. Look at Quran. Maybe it makes sense a little bit, maybe it doesn't make sense at all. There are different Quans, varying degrees of what seems to be muddy. In reality, we are muddied. Pawns are clear, pure, clean. But we are not looking at what we are seeing. We are looking at what we bring into seeing. Totally convinced that we are seeing something, hearing something. So when we are asked to work on a corn, First, we have to look at it. What is it trying to say? What's going on here? Right? So there is that. There is the workings of a koan. There's a story or a line, a few words together. But then we have to drop that. 
And we have to go further. What is it evoking in me? What in me, if at all, is responding? Not to the words. To what the words are pointing at. The words are not pointed to more words. Those words are mirroring something. But again, how are we looking? What eyes are you using? What ears are you using? How deeply do you, can you lose yourself to the core? You know, and then when, you, when it's time to express it, it feels awkward. We, we talk about it often. It feels awkward because I don't know what to do. I can explain what it's about, but I don't know what to do with it. But that's the point, isn't it? Well, you know, practice is asking you again and again, just be yourself. Just be yourself. Remove everything. What's left? So then we remove everything, but then even after that, there is still something there. We feel that, well, there's nothing to let go of. It's all gone. Here I am. I can tell you what I see in this coin. Great. And then we connect it to the story. And a teacher, a Dharma teacher, is not interested in your story. A Dharma teacher is interested in you. Not in what you think you are. There's a huge difference there. So when you show up in Dogusan, you sit down, and it's not just Dogusan, moment by moment. Again and again you are asked to leave everything behind, everything outside the Dokusan And show up. Maybe for the first time in your life, show up. Be. How, how difficult is that? Why? Why is it so difficult for us to just be? Why do we insist on dragging everything with us? How do we know that it's working, right? Someone asked in Dokusan, how do we determine realization? How do we ourselves, and also how does a teacher determine a student's realization, degree of realization? There are many ways to, to know whether a person has come across realization. Now, one of them has to do with, and this takes time, it's over a period of time, we, we begin to realize that maybe it's easier for us to, to shift from one situation to another. When something changes, we change with it. So to see, to watch, 
people to see how quickly they drop, let go, move on. Very important. But it can't be done artificially. Because if it's done artificially, it seems like we are moving on, but we are taking a shitload of stuff with us. And it gets heavier and heavier. But we put on a smile, I'm done, I've moved on, all gone. Not exactly. Realization is not made up in the same way that you cannot be made up. That's one way. The other way is the degree of compassion that flows naturally. Naturally. Again, non-manufactured compassion, not made up. Compassion and wisdom are non-dual. There is no wisdom without compassion. There is no compassion without wisdom. So now we hear words like that, or we read words like that, and then we wake up in the morning and go, today I'm going to act compassionately. How long does it last? How long does it take for the annoyance to come back up? We are annoyed. Very quickly, by something. It doesn't matter what it is. Something gets in our way. And then we start to complain at the beginning to ourselves and then to the world and then the animosity develops starts to pick up momentum and we end the day differently from the way we started it it keeps showing up it keeps telling us it keeps showing us where to go what to do how to practice Well, we are quite stupid, often, and we don't listen. And then we create more of the same. Every time we are annoyed by somebody doing something, we get an opportunity to look at that which is annoyed. But of course, it's easier to go and correct that which is annoying us. Right? You should be doing this this way. Why? Well, primarily because I don't want to be annoyed. I mean, it's really what it's about. It's not about the thing, it's about us. I want to feel better. I want to be at peace, so help me out here. Well, that doesn't work. And we know it doesn't work. So every time we feel annoyed, again and again we get an opportunity. Every time we're not feeling quite right, feeling out of sorts, not having patience for other people. And then somebody shows up and asks, could you please do that for me? 
I don't have time for compassion today. Tomorrow morning, come back. I need a good night's sleep before I can put out some compassion. This is common. But the true test, test, the true mark shows up when you're tired, when you're hungry, when you are irritated, when you don't feel like doing something, then you know. Then you know the level of wakefulness or you know the level of sleep, the depth of sleep. We sleep, we dream, and it sounds real, it seems real, tastes real. I don't know if we want to wake up, right? I mean, maybe we think it works. Maybe we think it works. This is case 40 from the uh, Luke Leaf record. He talks about dreaming. The pointer. Seize and deceased. Then an iron tree blooms with flowers. Is there anyone? Is there? A clever lad loses his profits. Even though he is free in seven ways up and down and eight ways across, he cannot avoid having another pierce his nostrils. But tell me, where is his error to test? I quote this to see the case. As the government official Lu Xuan was talking with Nanquan. He said, Master of the teachings, Sen Chao said, Heaven, Earth, and I have the same root. Myriad things and I are one body. This is quite marvelous. Nanquan pointed at the flower in the garden and said, People these days see this flower as a dream. The verse. Seeing, hearing, awareness, knowledge, these are not one and the same. Mountains and rivers are not seen in a mirror. The frosty sky's moon sets, the night nearly half over. With whom will it cast a shadow, cold and clear pool? With whom? This koan is one of a collection of eight koans that Hakuin named as most difficult to pass. And it's interesting that those koans in the list of these eight koans, they don't seem that difficult to understand intellectually. We think, well, I, I know what this is about. 
which is kind of a hint. Right? It's showing us what we're trapped. I know what this is about. I know what I'm looking at. I know what I'm hearing. Who knows? Who is the one that knows? How intimate are we with the one who knows? Look, look deeply and you will see that the one who knows is terrified. All the time. Absolutely terrified. Thrown between knowing and not knowing. Grasping. Afraid. Constantly. Even when masked. Probably more so than masked, when masked. So how are we looking at things? This is so important to turn it around rather than automatically go with, yeah, this is the way I am built. That's the way I was born, raised told to function. You know, so, a week ago, we entered the training period, ango period, right? That each one of us, each one of you, took on the responsibility to intensify the practice. To work on tightening up the slack. And you took time, I know you did, to identify what is stagnant in your life. Dark, areas, places you have been avoiding, things you have shoved under an imaginary rug, probably large rug, and you voiced your commitment in front of the Sangha, some in person, some by proxy. But now, a week into it, that these commitments are put to the test of everyday activity. How do we uphold them? How do you know that the ways you choose to disentangle the knots are not in fact entangling you further? This is very important to look at how we do what we do. Because if we don't do that, nothing changes. How will it change? We're using the same tools over and over again. the same tool will create the same results. Because the tool is limited to its function, to the way it's built. And I know you were very sincere when you made the commitments. But unless or until we examine, carefully examine the way we are addressing the issues. We just go around in circles. And then the next angle rolls in. And what we do is we cut and paste. Right? We cut and paste. We take, we look at the last angle. Right? You probably save it on your computer. You fill out the form. I'm just going to cut and paste it in this one. Right? Different dates, 
different season, I still need to work on that. Well, how did you work on it last time? If you're doing what you have done until this point, nothing will, well, you know where you will be. Let's put it that way. You know where it takes you. So to examine the way in which we do the examination is far more important than the subject of the examination. We need to examine. Now, examination is the only way practice is kept alive. Deep, intensified examination, moment by moment. You know, this is what this practice is, is asking us to do. Not to do things in a conventional way. Zen is not conventional. It's not that it's rejecting convention. It's not rejecting anything. It can't reject anything. But it is not conventional. So how do we examine? How else can we examine? You know, this is not a psychoanalytical process that we just sit there and look at what arises and try to disentangle the knots and learn about what happened in the past and make peace with it and move on. And yeah, it happens. We do it. It's a part of practice. It's just superficial layer. Psychology does not reach the depth of Zen practice. Psychology deals with the self. Zen doesn't see a self. There is time and place, and we need to study that aspect of who we are, of what we are. But we have to go further, we have to go deeper. We need to examine with the flash, through the flashlight of wisdom. And that being said, it means not in a dualistic way of self that is doing the examination and the subject that is being examined. That's what gets tricky. Because whatever we do, Whatever we think about, whatever we feel, already comes with, it has in it, a sense of separateness. I am the one who is feeling this. I am the one who wants to not be deluded, be enlightened, not feel this way, feel that way. I'm the one who has taken on commitment to work on. Always goes back to that. 
the good old trap of dualism. The question is, how do we get out of that trap? That's what the practice is about. Otherwise, we never experience freedom. You know, we, we go from one room to another. It looks different, smells different, same house. Well, maybe the other room is better. I'll go in there. Like, wow, you know, these colors are just so much more pleasant. I like it. I'll settle down here for a while. After a while, no. It's not, not yet it. I'm not satisfied. I go to the kitchen, eat something. It doesn't work. And I think we're here because we know it doesn't work. Otherwise, we will be in the kitchen eating something now. So that disconnect, we have to understand that what we see is not what is going on. What we hear is not what is going on. That's very difficult. This is Dr. Christine Rank, I don't know if maybe you've heard of her, who's specializing in working with survivors of profound trauma. She describes that gap, the gap that is born when we interact with reality through our senses. And I want to share that with you. She says, we don't really see what's there. Our belief that we are seeing what is actually there comes from the incredible illusion of sight that our brain creates. Here's how it works. Light enters through the iris and makes its way to the retina, which sends the information to the vision center of the brain. Using the information from these signals, the brain creates an impression of what is there, a table, your wife, a plant, a bee, anything. And this impression is based mostly on memories of what we were taught was there, right, when we were children. So it is not your eyes that see, it is your brain that is interpreting what th what's there. And our brain mostly just lets us know what we already know. It lets us know what we already know. It confirms what you bring with you. It confirms what you bring with you. We are seeing, but we are not seeing. And the brain needs years of training to turn what the eyes see into a meaningful image. That's because the brain cannot recognize what the eyes see without the training and the memory. This is why a young child cannot recognize a car or a dog or anything, for that matter, until they've been trained. Until then, what the child sees is a field of information that only becomes a car after they've been told what to expect 
after they've been taught to call it a car. This is also why people who lose their sight in early childhood and gain it back in adulthood still cannot see very much at all, since their brains were not trained to recognize anything. It's a great example. What a catastrophe, isn't it? In other words, we don't see much of what's actually there. We only see what we already think is there. We already think is there. What a disconnect. But it's nobody's fault, she says. There's only so much information around us that the brain has to filter out everything that is not crucial to our survival in order to keep us from being overwhelmed. But as we get older, we become less able to see anything that does not fit with what our memory tells us. By that time, we're only seeing memories. That's why things don't look new, right? Oh, I've been there many times. I've seen it many times before. I know. I know what she's about. I know what he's about. I'm done. Things never change. Things always repeat themselves. Of course. Regardless of what we are actually seeing at any time, we are at all times surrounded by energy that is mostly invisible to us. Our vision enter center only sees what's there, such as a tree. If the atoms of the tree are vibrating at the same frequency as our vision center does, then we see it as a tree. Just a little higher than that in vibration, and the tree will disappear or will look like a ghost. Anything that vibrates higher or lower than our limited frequency range is completely invisible for us. So what is actually there? Who can say? Think about it for a moment. Everything you see, everything you think about, everything you hear is not an indication of what's going on. So isn't it surprising that we always keep encountering the same things? There is, there is a remedy, though. I mean, it sounds quite depressing, but there is a remedy. But the remedy cannot be, cannot be seen in the same way we see everything else. Which means we have to find, we have to step out of this, and we have to find a way to see directly. And it happens. It's just it happens so quickly then we miss it. Look outside, you see a tree, right? 
tree, as she says, a tree. But before it is a tree, there is a split second of seeing something, of really seeing. But a split second later, it is gone, and so are we. Gone. Back to the same old place. Back to the sphere of me. That split second before the mind moves, as we say in Zen, before the mind moves, there is a sense of recognition when you look outside and you see. There is a sense of familiarity. And that's what we have to stay with. That split second of recognition of I don't know what it is, but I know what it is. I feel at home. It's a different kind of home. It's a home that has no room for you. And yet, it cannot be more you. It is the most you that could possibly be. The most you. Because commonly we're not aware of this process at all. So we don't bother to question our ability to see clearly. I'll just get the right pair of glasses and I'm good to go. I see clearly. Here's a chair. Here's a problem. Here's a solution. You ask people about seeing, they'll tell you everything about what they see, about what they think, about their opinions, about what they like, what they dislike, none of which, none of which describes them. Or none of it describes reality, pure, naked, unhindered reality. Can you let go of that? Right? Can, we, can we even imagine letting go of everything we brought up to this point? Everything. Drop it. Completely. Remember that quote, Ajahn Shah, if you let go a little bit, you'll have a little peace. If you let go a lot, you'll have a lot of peace. If you let go completely, you'll be free. Completely. You'll be free. Free of you. Free of your baggage, as we call it. This is, this is a, a, an extremely part of, important part of practice. We have to be able to step into this over and over again, into the flow, out of the stagnant, into the flow, again and again. Although it seems scary, problematic, 
we have to keep doing it and then learn to function in that realm. But for that, we first have to recognize that, that there's something wrong. Not wrong in the way we are built, but there, there is a problem in the way we are interacting with reality. Because it doesn't yield what we want, right? I mean, we know that. It doesn't. It doesn't do anything, because we're still restless. Maybe you remember the, the words of Hafiz. A couple of you keep reminding me of this. When he said, first the fish needs to say, something is not right about this camel ride. And why am I feeling so damn thirsty? Right? Something is wrong with this camel ride. You know, the thing is, we've been on that camel ride for such a long time and it feels home. You know, it's dry, it's, you know, it's just, it's just too much dust here in the desert and, you know, but what are you going to do? Move the dust, clean it up, get some water, dig a well. Your home is in water. You are water. It doesn't feel this way. That's the beginning. That recognition is only the beginning to recognize. This is bodhicitta. The recognition that there is something in me that knows. Then, that needs practice. We realize through practice, we realize in practice, and we can realize before practice. It really doesn't matter. We can realize one day and then the next day we are back to producing more suffering for ourselves and others. Because realizations need practice. Practice needs realization. Practice is realization. But we have to fully commit ourselves. Fully commit ourselves not to a thing. Again, one of the reasons I think that why we, we, we are afraid to commit ourselves is because we think that we will lose ourselves. We think that we are becoming something else. Well, the losing ourselves is great. That's exactly what we need to do. But we have to understand that it's not about becoming something. It's not about putting on, taking on, off one hat and putting on another hat. It's about committing ourselves to ourselves. Do you see restlessness in yourself and in others? I wonder sometimes if you actually see that. Because it's very clear. There's a lot of that. You close your eyes and you feel it. You sense it. And we are told to sit and not move on the cushion. That's a big part of it. Don't move. Shut up for a while. Think not thinking. Of course, the practice makes sense, makes complete sense. Stop agitating. 
then maybe you will not be agitated. Really makes sense. But I don't want to do that. I don't want to give up anything. Or for a little while I'll give up something and I'll run back to fill in the blank. Run back to comfort. And we come here to do a zazenkai and yeah, later on, I watch this movie, I'm going to go hang out, get some drinks, do whatever. I'll just get through this. It doesn't work. Might as well not come. Or maybe you never did. That's a possibility too. Maybe you're not here. Maybe you're dreaming. Maybe we're all dreaming. We have to cut that gap. We have to stop creating an imaginary gap. In the trust in mind, Saint San says, the subject disappears with its object. The object vanishes without its subject. Objects and subjects. Objects are objects, sorry, because of subjects. Subjects are subjects because of objects. What we create is there because we create a gap. Because we create a self. When you don't create a self, you don't create a problem. Simple. Simple, and yet it's like climbing a mountain of souls with bare feet. That simple. And he says, know that these are not, that are essentially of one emptiness. They are not two. They are not dual. Subject and object. One emptiness. The one emptiness unites opposites, equally pervading all phenomena, not differentiating what is fine or coarse. How can there be any preferences? The great way is all-embracing, neither easy nor difficult. The narrow-minded doubt this. In haste, they fall behind. In haste, we fall behind. We doubt. It's okay to doubt. But again, how do you doubt? What do you do with the doubts? Do you doubt and go back into the shell? Or do you doubt and then become more curious? There is the doubting that puts you right back into the shell. more afraid. And there is that there are the doubts that can help you shatter the shell, break free, come to life. So you can live fully and you can die fully. When it's time to die, you just die. Just die.
sometimes I have a lot to say and then I don't know how much of it I need to discard of. I feel that the more I talk, the more time I still take away from your practice. And I don't want to do that. You know, so what is a dream? You know, he talks about, Nanquan talks about a dream. You know, he says that people these days, and this was how many years ago? 13, 1200 years ago? Roughly. Still, people these days see this as if in a dream. It's a very long night, isn't it? Thousands of years. Very long night. So how do we wake up? How do we know we are awake when we wake up? How do we know we are not creating a dream within a dream? Or as Dogen called it, delusion within delusion. Delusion within delusion. You know, maybe we wake up in a dream, but not out of a dream. Trang Tzu once had a dream that he was a butterfly. Then he woke up and he remembered the dream. And he was wondering, am I a man that had a dream about being a butterfly? Or am I a butterfly that is now dreaming he's a man? How do we know that? How do we know that this is not a dream? It's a good question. It's a really important question. And only you can dive deeply into answering this question. Nobody can, thankfully, nobody can do it for you. I'm not here to tell you if you're dreaming or, or not, if you're dead or alive. I'm here to ask you to practice, to ask you to see for yourself, to ask you not to compromise on what you brought with you and eat that over and over again. I'm here to tell you that there's plenty of fresh food brand new. All you have to do is just grab and eat. It's free. But we have to do it. We have to study reality. We have to do it. It's amazing how, how much we believe our dreams. Somebody once told me she had a dream about her husband behaving in some obnoxious way. I don't remember the details. And then the next day she said all day long she had really tough time not being pissed off at him the whole day. And she actually said the guy was really nice to her. Didn't do anything wrong. He probably thought he did something wrong. <laughs> all day long. But she couldn't stop being really pissed off with him. 
completely believe that, well, I know it's a dream, but I'm in a grip of it. Maybe she didn't wake up that morning. Maybe she just thought she's awake. Maybe that was another dream. There's a story about Elder Fu of Taiwan who was once expounding the Nirvana scripture. And there was a wandering monk, who was the cook from Jia Shan, who was studying in the temple. He showed up. He took the opportunity to sit down and listen to the lecture. When the lecture touched on the three bases of Buddha nature and the three qualities of the body of reality, and Fu spoke profusely on the subtle principle of the body of reality, the cook suddenly broke out laughing. Fu just looked at him. When the lecture was over, he had somebody summon the, uh, the chef, the cook, and ask him, my simple knowledge is narrow and inferior. I interpret the meaning according to the words. Just now, in the course of the lecture, I saw you break out in a laugh. I must have some shortcoming. Please explain it to me. I think this is a pretty humble way of dealing with somebody laughing in your lecture, but let's just give him the benefit of the doubt and see where it goes. The cook said, If you did not ask, I dare not speak. Since you have asked, I cannot but explain. I was actually laughing because you don't know the body of reality. And Fu said, what is wrong with my explanation, such as it was? The cook said, please explain it once more. And Fu said, okay, the principle of the body of reality is like the great void. Vertically, it goes through past, present, and future. Horizontally, it extends through the ten directions of the universe. It fills the eight extremities and embraces both positive and negative modes. According to conditions, it tends towards effect. There is nowhere it does not extend. Great. Textbook answer. The cook said, I did not say your explanation is wrong. Only that you know you don't know that which pertains to the extent of the body of reality. The explanation is fine. You do not actually know the body of reality. You know how to talk about it eloquently, beautifully. You know nothing about what it is. But that makes sense, right? Because seeing, hearing, touching, smelling, thinking is not a way to interact with reality. Well, it's the way we are interacting with reality, but it's not a way to know reality. So Fu said, granting that you're right, you should explain it for me. That's good. The cook said, if you agree, then give up lecturing for 10 days and meditate correctly in a quiet room. Collect your mind, gather your thoughts, give up various clingings to good and bad all at once and investigate exhaustively on your own. On your own. Fu did just that. And from the first to the fifth watch of the night, then he heard the sounding of the drum. At that moment, he suddenly attained realization. Well, it sounds very nice. It's made it for 10 days. Why well, I can do that. Only if you guarantee that in 10 days I will be enlightened. 
but it's not so packaged this way. It's not so neatly packaged. I mean, this is probably someone who did practice, but fell into a trap of words. And that's what Nankuan is trying to point at. He's not pointing at the flower. He's not pointing at anything. When the Buddha told the flower, the vulture peak, Makashyapa was the only one smiling. What was it about? What did Makashyapa see in the flower? Was he looking at the flower? Was he looking at all? You, only you, can do that, can go through. But not the you that you brought with you. In a way, you came in with the obstacle and the solution. You are perfectly self-equipped to do harm and to do good. Do you hear that? That's saying a lot more than what could ever say. The crow. Doing what it's doing. Listen. Look. Taste. Touch. And lose yourself completely 